This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And it's the month of April. April showers bring May flowers. Maybe. If you try hard enough. <laughs> I mean, as, actually, as we record this, is March 28th, and we got alerts on our phones here in the Philadelphia area about something called a snow squall. Yeah. And snow squall, you know what month it is and how late it is in that month. What are you doing? Snow Listen, squall? it snowed at my April wedding several years ago, so I just am unfortunately prepared for the fact that I could not see the city of Philadelphia today mm-hmm. as I was driving over a bridge. Snow squall. Snow squall. Welcome to our book podcast, where each week one of us reads a book, tells the other person about it, uh, and yeah, <laughs> you got nothing else. No. Um, okay. I have a I have a correction to issue, but I'll wait till the end of the podcast to do that correction. I won't do it up top. Why don't you do it up top? Because we did we made the mistake up top last time. Well, <laughs> uh, now so there's suspense built for it. Is, all right, there? so the I, the book I read for this week is The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about our buddy Kaz again here in a minute. Yeah, uh, at the beginning of last week's podcast, we announced the April schedule during which we said we'd be reading a little play by a guy named William Shakespeare, maybe you've now, heard of him, called listen. King Lear, this and was... then it was brought to our attention by a listener that we'd done that one already, and we finally we finally did it. We, we finally, finally did it. We finally said we were going to read a book that we did already. <laughs> we finally <laughs> issued the formal, official, overdue listener test, mm-hmm. which was, did you know all the books we read? Did you know all the books we've done for the podcast? Yeah. So this, I mean. Are you brave enough to let us know? Can you let us know? Yeah. So thanks to the folks in our lovely Discord who uh, did spot that within like a couple of hours of the announcement going up, (laughs) which is pretty good. Let me tell you the real April schedule. Yeah. Now that you passed our test, now you get to know the real book. Uh, So obviously Andrew's going to talk about Remains of the Day here today. Uh, and then next week, I'm going to be discussing The Winter's Tale by William Shakespeare, appropriate for our snow squall April so far, April, March. Uh, then we will, of course, be discussing Trust Exercise by Susan Choi and The Girl Who Kicked a Hornet's Nest by Stig Larson. And we will still be reading The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. So, really, I got a B on the test. I got. Five out, four out of the five books right. A B. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll make a movie about me. Andrew, mm-hmm. so this is not the first Kaz Ishiguro book that we have covered on the show. No, and it's not the second one. No, it's somehow the third. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of them have been Patreon recommendations. Um, so I read Never Let Me Go for episode 236. You read Barry Giant. 
for episode 446. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one, Remains of the Day, is a recommendation from Nicole. Thank you, Nicole, who said, please, please, please <laughs> cover Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. One of the few books I've loved that I esteem the film of almost as well. Wonderfully written and structured and treads a great line between romance and history. Restrained, subtle, atmospheric, poignant, and filled with a beautiful, delicate tension throughout I-M-H-O, it says here. <laughs> There's a lot of words there for you to agree and disagree with. I just feel, I, I have said this before, and I go back and forth on how strongly I feel about this, but when you say I-M-H-O, and you yeah. put the H in there, uh-huh. I feel like that is a signal that you're not being humble. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. You are proud to have an opinion. Yes, right. Proud to be an American with mm-hmm. an opinion. So this is uh, uh, Remains of the Day is a book about an English butler, which is which seemed like a <laughs> yeah, which was a choice I was taken a little off guard by. <laughs> Why knowing nothing about the book going in? I don't know. I I don't I you know I I knew the name of the book. I knew it was it was our buddy Kaz. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was expecting a book that felt like it could have been written at the time that it takes place instead oh, of in like the 1980s. I think I was expecting because c- it, it starts like, and we, we could talk a little bit about yeah, Cass, yeah. but it's just, it's initially comes off as overwritten, but that's just because it's the character that you're yes. hanging out with. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's very flowery and, and yeah, it just gave me it gave me old book vibes, and it, I guess it is from our perspective <laughs> oldish, but it gave me older book vibes. No, we, you and I, I don't like by. we don't like to think of the '80s as old book vibes no. usually. No, no. no. Um, so yeah, well, and that's interesting. I knew about this book. I think it had come up in conversation a lot when Downton Abbey was popular, like when Downton Abbey first That makes happened. a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense, because I yes. got big Downton Abbey vibes. Like, I haven't watched a lot of Downton Abbey. But you know. But I know. Like, there's, you know, th- there are whole relationships between, like, people on the staff that are just, like, glances that are only yes. intermittently addressed. And, uh-huh. yeah. No, I get it. Yes. Um, and so, I yeah, I had, like, heard of it. I think I had ever given this book as a gift to someone without reading it because I had read Never Let Me Go. And I was mm-hmm. like, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. I like this book. I have no idea how that worked out. Um, that's how it goes when you give books as a gift. <laughs> I mean, have you heard from any of those people again? Or did they exit your life forever after that? No, they're still in my life, but we've just never talked about the book. So okay. they probably well, just I mean, put it in a drawer. It can't have done that much harm. Then. That's a fair point. Um Sir Kazuo Ishiguro is a British novelist of Japanese origin and a Nobel laureate in literature. Uh, We've talked about him on those previous episodes. Uh, The things that I learned in doing research for this episode that are a little bit different that I didn't note before, when his family moved to England in 1960, it was because his dad was an oceanographer and they thought it was going to be a temporary trip, but then... He just, whatever the invention he had was too important, so they stayed. I mean, does he know how big the ocean was? <laughs> well, maybe Kaz. I think I think 
going <laughs> thinking it's going to be temporary. Like, have you seen the ocean? It's big. It's a lot to do. It's a big ocean. Uh, and Kaz said he started his uh, creative writing studies at the University of East Anglia because he had been trying to make it as a musician and songwriter, and it was not working out. <laughs> huh. Uh, this program that's launched many artists' yes. careers. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and this was his third novel. He had published A Pale View of Hills and An Artist of the Floating World, both of which were well received. He says that uh, after the fame from this book is what prompted his family to get an answering machine because enough people were calling him up and trying to take him to dinner, all sorts of stuff like that. That's, you know, the early 1990s mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, because just this... leaving and leaving stuff on his answering machine, and <laughs> but he couldn't hear it the phone because he had his Walkman in, like it's uh-huh. the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> this novel won the 1989 Man Booker Prize. It won the Whitbread the Whitbread Prize as well, um, and was adapted into a film in 1993, starring Sir Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, uh, some other people. Um, I was explaining the trailer to you before we started recording. I've already forgotten their names. I think Superman was in it. I think Christopher Reeve was in it. Christopher Reeve's in it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, Hugh Grant is in it. Is Lena Headley in it? Lena Headey is in it. Lena yes. Headey, that's her name. Yes. Excuse me. Um, Famous for being, I, I don't remember what show. It's not important what show she was on. Oh, that I feel show. like it, it's a show that people talked about for a long time that it ended so badly that did it, that show have really memorable cinematography it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should teach it in film school anyway <laughs> this book is listed on a lot of the like best English language books ever I think it's also just because it's really quintessentially British <laughs> In a, it's very it's British like, it's extremely British and, and and Kaz has said he uh, like a lot some of the research he did was you know Writing, trying to f- learn about servants and learn about that, but he said to the Paris Review, he was surprised. Um, given how many people were employed in service right up until the Second World War, it was amazing that so few of them had thought their lives worth writing about. Most of the stuff in the remains of the day about the rituals of being a servant was made up. Because <laughs> he didn't have anything to go on. Yeah, I mean, if if the if real servants were anything like uh stevens the butler who mm-hmm. is the guy in the remains of the day yeah they just didn't think it was their place to be writing a bunch of stuff and like flaunting that they were individuals who could have their own like desires and and thoughts and that gets to where he said the novel came from um this will be, maybe be one of the last things we talk about up here um, it, he told the Paris Review that the book came from a joke that his wife made. There was a journalist coming to interview me for my first novel, he said. My wife said, wouldn't it be funny if this person came in to ask you these serious, solemn questions and you pretended that you were my butler? <laughs> he thought this was a very amusing idea. I became obsessed with the butler as a metaphor for two things. A certain kind of emotional frostiness. The English butler has to be terribly reserved and not have any personal reaction to anything that happens around him. The other is the butler as an emblem of someone who leaves the big political decisions to somebody else. He says, I'm just going to do my best to serve this person, and by proxy, I'll be contributing to society, but I myself will not make the big decisions. Um, And from what I gleaned from the trailer of this movie, that seems to be what it's about. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I'm sure you will tell me if that's true or not. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he also apparently wrote this book in like a four week, what he calls a crash. He was he had writer's block, and he somehow convinced his wife to let him have no other responsibilities for four weeks except writing this book. <laughs> I gotta figure that one out for me. <laughs> Once this move is done, maybe and that that is it's interesting they did that because the buried giant took like a decade to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to write. So you yes. know, you take um, the take the quick ones, you take the slow ones. Yeah, there's a Guardian article he did he wrote about that where he there's some interesting stuff. If you want to go find it, you just Google the Guardian uh, Kazu Shiguru uh, remains of the day. You'll find it, um, and he is talking about like how much research you should do before you do that type of you know, full-blown writing thing and how much he, you know, is kind of lucky he didn't do because he would have been overwhelmed. Um, and, yeah, it's some funny anecdotes in there about him just kind of slowly losing his mind as he just thinks he's a butler for four weeks. Yep. But, yeah, I'm excited to uh, find out what you thought about it. Roger Ebert liked the movie. Good, I'm glad. Thought it was a pretty good adaptation of a book he thought was unfilmable, so... Why did he think it was unfilmable? Because it's so in, like it's so interior, it, the interiority of it. I guess I don't. I certainly don't think it's unfilmable. It, you couldn't. You would have to adapt it, which is what <laughs> movies are. Like it's how can a guy whose whole job is movies not understand how this works? Harold Pinter took his name off the script because he didn't like what they were doing to the screenplay. Jeez, oh, all right. <laughs> Okay, let's take a break, and then you can tell me what remains of this day. Okay. Craig, I'm going to tell you at least one thing that you can do with the remains of your day, and that's make a great website with Squarespace. (laughs) Okay. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites, and yes, you guessed it once again. They are one of our sponsors this week. Oh, yeah. Squarespace gives you beautiful templates, powerful drag and drop tools, 24-7 customer support, and nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And they take all that stuff and they throw it in a big old pot and they stir it up real good and they serve it up to you on a platter. And that's how you make a website. Nom, nom, nom websites. Let me tell you about some of the tasty features that you'll find here Mm. in Squarespace. (laughs) Did you know, Craig, that you can grow and engage your audience with Squarespace email campaigns? I do now. Create powerful email content that matches your website with your existing products, blog posts, and logo so your messaging is consistent and effective. Whoa. You can also support causes by gathering contributions with PayPal, Apple Pay, Stripe, and Venmo. And you get analytics that give you powerful insights into who's visiting your site and how they're interacting with your content. This flavor profile is blowing me away. I know. I know. Uh, those analytics will give you tools including page views, traffic sources, tra- time on site, most read content, audience geography, and more. So if people are visiting you from merry old England, guess what? You're going to know about it. All right, Gov. I'm here on your website. Oi, all right. Then if you want, if you want, if this sounds good to you, Squarespace <laughs> does. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue. Start that free trial and then save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace, isn't it? Andrew, this podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Teeth grinding, headaches, lack of sleep. (laughs) Sometimes the discomforts of your earthly mortal shell can be indicators of stress. (laughs) 
Is this in their copy? <laughs> the, the first part was. The other okay. part was me. Uh, Andrew, what stresses you out, man? We both hey, got what, a lot of stress. What isn't stressing me out? Am I right? Uh, am I right? Ask been... me about what the appropriate height to hang a toilet paper holder is. <laughs> a lot if you want to know what's stressing stress. me out. Change. Lots of things going on. BetterHelp is here with a reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. I know a lot of folks for whom therapy is a great tool to talk through what's weighing on them, to get another perspective, come up with a plan of action to alleviate some stress. I don't know if they can help you with your toilet paper holder, Andrew, but... Maybe they can help you talk about something else if you need to. They can tell me what the toilet paper roll thing is really all about, <laughs> like under underneath it all. Yes, that is where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Overdue listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Overdue. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Overdue. You know, Craig, we don't often come up with alternate titles for the books that we read, but if I were going to come up with one for this book, it would be, I can't believe it's not Butler. That's good. Is it? <laughs> That's better than what some other guy told Kaz he should call the novel. Some He was at a writer's retreat and some guy was like, you should call it Sirloin a Juicy Tale. <laughs> and then, no, actually, that is very good, though. Someone suggested something that Freud said that translated as debris of the day, and that's where the title came from. But mm -hmm. either of the ones we said before would be good. Yeah. Um, well, so we've been talking about how this book is about a butler. Tell me about him. You want to hear about this butler, Stevens? Stevens, please. Even yeah, who Stevens is this, me. This, this fella of undisclosed, but probably advanced-ish advanced -ish age. He's like yeah. retirement age-ish. Okay. He's been working at this big old estate for a long, long time, for decades mm -hmm. and decades. He used mm -hmm. to work for this guy, Lord Darlington. Okay. Uh, but Lord Darlington died a few years back. How dare he? And so now he's been working for this American guy who bought the who bought the house and he really was into having just the whole English <laughs> butler experience. And when he bought the house, he was like one of the things that I want when I buy this house is I want the butler to stay and I want the staff to stay and I want to have a butler. <laughs> How recent is this when the book be does that make does that question make sense? Like How long ago did the American guy buy the house? Yeah, yeah. It's within the last like year or so, I okay. think. Sounds okay. about right. Like like uh Stevens has been getting to know Mr. American. Mr. Uh, American. <laughs> His name is not Darlington. It's something else, I'm sure. It's something else, but it's not it's not really important because he only exists to he only exists to give Stevens an opportunity to talk about what it was like to be a real English butler working for a real English gentleman. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh Mr. Faraday is his name. But okay. uh, so at the beginning of the book. Uh, Stevens is thinking about going for a drive around the English countryside because of this letter that he's gotten from this old colleague of his, Miss Kenton. Mm. Uh, and he 
so we're going to talk about Stevens and just how in his head this book is and okay. how like essential that perspective is to like your understanding of, of events. Sure. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't strike you as a classic unreliable narrator because he certainly seems to have himself pulled together pretty well. That's part of the, the also like the aura of a British butler. Mm-hmm. Like I think, there's at least one interview where Kaz is like, I know I'm writing this butler and like everyone's got a everyone's got familiarity with this type of character, this guy in a penguin costume who's yeah. very, you know, calm and unflappable and ho 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 ho, you know, no, that's a French butler, excuse me. But <laughs> I mean, Stevens does uh say that continentals can't be great butlers. <laughs> So I don't even know if a French butler, like that sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> okay, sure. So this, and when, this is when, mid 20th century? It's not in the 80s. This is, yeah, it's, so the the contemporary part of the book is happening in the 50s. So like okay. some some comfortable distance away from World War II. Mm. And then the flashbacky bits of the book that, I think constitute most of it. I didn't do like an exact split because it jumps back and forth a bunch in okay. time. But uh, the other part of the book is taking part in the past, mostly in the period in between the two sure. world wars, like in the early to mid thirties, like in the run up to world war two. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, and so and he's, was, yes. he was, he got a letter and yes, he, yes, he got okay. he got a letter from Miss Kenton, and he has inferred that Miss Kenton, because she talked, uh, you know, with some uh, fondness for the the time that she used to work in the house, he thinks maybe she wants to come back and work in the house again with me mm-hmm. because things that you know, some things, small things, have been falling by the wayside in this house, and it's not. It is partly because we are understaffed. And none of it has been catastrophic, especially because Mr. Faraday doesn't really know what he's he would be missing. Sure. When things do go wrong. This is but how boy, it's always it been, be, Mr. It Faraday. Be nice to see Miss Kenton, mostly because it would be good to have her back to help me do the butling. Okay. That I'm doing. Yes. That he that's would the, love to keep doing. That's the like the verb. Butling? Version. Yeah, to butling. That's right, right? Yeah, I you're not an unreliable narrator. I trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he uh, wants so her he back. so Faraday is like, man, you should take a vacation, Stevens. You old <laughs> you old nut. Uh, and he even offers to uh, what is it? <laughs> it's uh, my Kindle search feature is broken right now. But he is offered to like foot the bill for the gas. I think is the exact okay. word. And when and Stevens always puts that in quotes, like. It's such an improper, weird thing. <laughs> it's such a weird Americanism for Mr. Faraday to like offer to pay for the gas for his, sure. his servant to go on a on vacation. A, on a vacation, yes. Okay, okay, okay. Servant slash employee, I guess. Where's he going to go on his vacation? He's going to drive out to the, you know the west west country where mm-hmm. uh, uh, Cornwall, I think, is is where, but it's like west of the Darlington estate. Okay, uh, where Miss Kenton lives with her husband who maybe she split up with maybe gotta find out gotta find out so he's gonna drive out there in the vin- in a vintage ford <laughs> and he is gonna meet her and he's gonna talk to her about coming back to work at the darlington house and boy wouldn't that be nice for everybody 
I I bet it would be nice for at least Stevens because mm-hmm. he seems I I get the suspicion that he is going not just because he wants to work with her again. I I just I have a sneaking. Is this because you watched the trailer for the movie? This feels. Like, I think it's because you watched the trailer for the movie. Maybe my <laughs> my expectations have been colored by marketing material. It's mm-hmm. definitely possible. So what we get for the rest of the book is this little. Uh, it, it's broken up by a day, so it's it's ostensibly like a little travelogue that Stevens oh. is giving you of his like journey through the countryside. He's, he's just driving for like three or four days mm-hmm. to go see Miss Kenton and he stops off in a couple of villages and he's hanging out and he's having a good time. And, but most of the, like the bulk of the book I think is him basically lying in bed at the end or beginning of a day, depending on, you know, what's happening and just ruminating on his current circumstances and on things that happened in the past with Mr. Darlington and Miss Kenton and the whole crew, uh, that his current circumstances remind him of. Oh, yeah. okay. So what you get is this, this ever more like filled in picture of what life used to be like at the Darlington's when Miss Kenton was there and Stevens was at the top of his game and Darlington was this, Sort of, he didn't have any official power, but he was a big time socialite who like fancied himself a mover and a shaker. Okay. Well, he clearly had money and he was a lord. Yeah, yeah. Though that I doesn't mean, mean he's important. I'm just saying that <laughs> there is could, there is some at least conventional wisdom that he would have power or at least think he would have power yeah i mean he he doesn't have he doesn't have power in the sense that he's not like an elected official he's not a member of parliament like he's not involved in the government at all but he is if you're a lord are you automatically in the house of lords i don't think that's how it works okay just asking i I don't know but i'm with you in that he's disenfranchised i don't know why they call it the house of lords actually (laughs) (laughs) Just like house just make of just like Lord. make sure like it's my chamber of the UK Parliament. Yeah, none of I those don't... guys are elected, aren't they? That in the House of Lords, I don't think so. I think it's just the House well, of Commons they... that does all the yelling at the Prime Minister and the King, and well, not the King, but yeah, I don't think that the Lords are elected. Okay. I think that's just an inherited land well, I'm gonna, gentry I'm gonna, thing. I'm gonna leave. They do have a logo that looks that makes them look like a small liberal arts college. If you look <laughs> at their Wikipedia page, I'm gonna minimize this thing about the House of Lords and come back to it later. Okay, lest I embarrass myself further. Sure, that's fine. <laughs> My point being is yeah. that he is an amateur statesman. Oh, okay. <laughs> like we are amateur historians. <laughs> Sure, and he he invites people to his house, and he stages uh, like big meetings with different not not even necessarily heads of state, but like people with of some influence in mm. their respective governments, and he thinks he's helping. Like his so his hobby horse, Darlington's, as you understand it early on, is so you got world. Remember World War One? I? I heard about it. Yeah. yeah. So World War One ends. In part, with I mean, there are a bunch of different treaties and stuff, but the Treaty of Vers- Versailles—that's the big one—is the yeah. big one. And outlined in that treaty 
is a bunch of stuff about what Germany has to do now that Germany has gotten its butt kicked in the yes, war. Yes, yes. One of those things is reparations uh-huh. to the countries that were wronged Yeah, by Germany in the <laughs> view of the people who put the treaty together. Correct. And Darlington's got this German friend who's as you know as this treaty is implemented and the the effects of it are felt like becomes more and more destitute until finally he dies mm. and it is the opinion of of Darlington that you know we beat them in a war but we got to be gentlemen about it like the the exact got to be thing, sporting about the exact thing that he says which is so english and so darlington <laughs> and so like what a frustrating, fusty old interpretation of war this is. Uh-huh. Uh, most of us in England find the present French attitude despicable. You may indeed call it a temperamental difference, but I venture we are, ta- we are talking about something rather more. It is unbecoming to go on hating an enemy like this once a conflict is over. Once you've got a man on the canvas, that ought to be the end of it. You don't then proceed to kick him. To us, the French behavior has become increasingly barbarous. So, like, you know, there's a war, like, people died, I guess, whatever. But now that the war is over, we should just, you know, be sporting about it, and we go out for a for a pint at the pub. And that's just, and that's just how nationalism works, is, like, you just, you know, nobody is going to, like, hold any grudges or, or feel any resentment about anything that happened, in any wars like you just you know you have a war as you do sometimes and then you you know you get it out of your system and you shake it off and you go about your business i have never i don't think on this podcast ever been so ready to defend the french (laughs) 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 like the and the generation of people that were just removed during that conflict from existence in the trench warfare that happened in their country that did not happen in England. And here I am defending the French, which they're fine. The French are fine, but I, I don't guess. need to wave yeah. their flag today. I didn't think I did. Mm-hmm. Look at what Darlington made me do. Yeah. This guy sounds a little naive. Yeah. So he's maybe a little naive. And so that this is where his his involvement in world affairs sort of starts is with mm. him being like, do we got to be so mean to the Germans? I mean, what do they do? And then it kind of proceeds as it does down to, you know, like Nazi apologism. Oh, cool. Okay. There's this whole thing. Is there where- a jump from his good friend died destitute to overtures toward the sitting regime? How does he get there? <laughs> I mean, it's just you, you get this in little drips and drabs. And the way that Darlington, pre- not Darlington, the way that Stevens presents it mm. is to is to make it seem like a reasonable thing. You know, anybody, anybody could, anybody could. Uh... It is, however, rather irksome, irksome to have to hear people talking today as though they were never for a moment taken in by Herr Ribbentrop who is a real person. Not everybody in this book is real, but Ribbentrop was a real uh, Nazi figure. Uh, As though Lord Darlington was alone in believing Herr Ribbentrop, an honorable gentleman and developing a working relationship with him. So a lot of it is like 
And I don't mm. even know that it's necessarily wrong, but no, no, yeah. A lot of like, well, just because the Nazis ended up being bad guys, what anybody who is ever friends with anybody in the Nazi party is a bad guy now? Like, what do you what? Yeah. But the but the as you read more, you get a fuller sense of Darlington. And like at best he is a rube who is being completely taken advantage of by the Nazi government. Like this impulse that he has toward like gentlemanliness and honor and whatever is sounds all, you know, well and good on paper, except for the part where he's like, well, war is just a sparring match between, yeah, between peers and you get up off the mat and you go on about your business after it's well, over. But, but he is, he also, you know, he, he's inserting himself into these yeah. like negotiations around modifying like Versailles. And then later on in, I think trying to secure Britain's like sort of like a neutrality, neutrality or, yeah. or like non-aggression in it's, the years leading up to World War II and it just, it just seems like if he is not actively a bad dude then he is a rube he's a rube who the version of self-importance that you outlined earlier makes him a very easy mark for manipulation yeah and exploitation yeah, yeah. I can't draw I just can't think of any parallels to people who exist today that could be used in such a way it no, just never and, and happened this is i mean this is all happened a long time ago this is all pretend and, yeah it's, it's all, so, well it happened a long time ago and nothing that happened a long time ago would ever uh happen again because we had did it once already and so having learned the lessons of history we wouldn't uh i'm not i'm not aware of any mechanisms through which history can repeat like nobody's invented time travel no or anything so i think the phrase is history happened once and then never again (laughs) that's the phrase that's thank you i couldn't put it together uh well something that i think you've keyed in on then is this you said earlier that the book felt like it was an old book or like it felt like it was written in the period in which it takes place. And yet what we've kind of hit on is like something that the book is doing is it's certainly benefiting from hindsight that the characters themselves don't really have, or at least it is the fact that the reader would be reading this at the earliest in the late eighties does certainly like inform how you might view stevens or darlington or whatever well and then that's so that's not where stevens like ends his his sort of rumination this is is just the picture of darlington that you slowly get and and like his so you've got to understand why stevens has his entire identity wrapped up in i do sort of painting darlington as like if not a good guy, then at least like a misunderstood guy. Okay. Because uh, he's got, yeah. you know, he's he's got a bad reputation now. Like he sort of died in, in disgrace to the mm. point where Stevens is not like jumping to tell strangers that he works up at the, Dar- uh, up at Darlington Hall because this oh, guy's sure. got a, this guy's got sort of a stinky name now. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's got, one of those stink, he's got one of those stink names with the stink lines coming <laughs> off of it because of the stinky things that he did. Yes. Um, okay. But it's 
Stevens in, in in that way that I you know sort of described before, where he's like, oh well, anybody could have been friends with this Nazi guy, like whatever. Yeah. Like he says, well, these rumors about Lord Darlington being anti-Semitic, like he's he wasn't anti-Semitic at all. Unless you count that one time oh, where there were two Jewish maids who he let go because one of his friends came over and was talking about how Jewish people aren't any good. Oh my! And it was God. just it was just peer pressure. And then later he felt bad about it. So it's really you know it's it's not a it's he he's just misunderstood. He's a misunderstood guy. And so to. The the two relationships in the in the book are Stevens Darlington and then Stevens Kenton. And we'll get to the Kenton yeah, stuff later because sure. it's it's generally a little lighter, like it does intersect in a couple of places. But that's the sort of romance end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um But Stevens has this view of like being a great butler as like being totally subservient to what your you know what your lord needs like just yeah. being like he, he goes on about this this quality of dignity hmm. um and how that is the thing that separates you know the the good butlers from the great butlers <laughs> okay uh dignity has to do crucially with a butler's ability not to abandon the professional being he inhabits lesser butlers will abandon their professional being for the private one at the least provocation for such persons being a butler is like playing some pantomime role a small push a slight stumble and the facade will drop off to reveal the actor underneath the great butlers are great by virtue of their ability to inhabit the professional role and inhabit it to the utmost. They will not be shaken out by external events. However, surprising, alarming, or vexing they wear their professionalism as a decent gentleman will, will wear his suit. He will not let ruffians or circumstance tear it off him in the public gaze. He will discard it when and only when he wills to do so. And this will invariably be when he is entirely alone. It is, as I say, a matter of dignity. So he's, yeah. Okay. Some of some of why he's come up with this this thing about dignity and about what being a great butler is is because he had a strained relationship with his father, and, and but it, but mostly it's because he and his father sort of pass each other in the halls, like each doing their own servant things without really acknowledging that the other exists. And when his father is in the house, like literally having a stroke and, and dying on his deathbed, he's like, "Well, I do, I got a." I got this party to get to. So like, let me know if he gets worse, but I got to go be a professional. That is a, a big source of like dramatic tension in stories that have this class dynamic in them. Like there's, there's been some doubt on in our house lately. And like, there are multiple scenes where it is like someone is being attacked or is learning a shocking truth that, tears their life apart Mm -hmm. and then it is intercut with scenes of like other service folks ignoring that information soldiering on despite that information Mm -hmm. like that is a i think that is one of the reasons we find this character type interesting or vexing well just the the total subjugation of of the personal yes to duty, it, whatever that yeah, means. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. like, I, I think that there are, there's an interesting conversation to be had about like what modern work life balance looks like and mm-hmm. how 
a lot of jobs do sort of ask for almost like a butlery level yeah. of of dedication mm-hmm. and devotion, especially among like, well, it, like the the direct analogs are like care workers, like caretakers, and and things like that. But well, there's but, a, but I mean, plenty of jobs ask this in the broader sense, which I think what you were saying jobs without the the purported like noble aims like if, yeah. if you're going to be a coder at some like silicon valley startup and they want you to just to like sleep at work and never leave yeah. and have no family and have no free time and have no nothing ever like it's it's but anyway <laughs> so that's that's one reason that stevens i think has this very deep need to like justify all this yeah, stuff to sure. us i think the other reason is something that gets into a little bit later is like I don't – there are some discussions partly from, from Darlington's point of view about like democracy and, and whether like the the people who are being ruled have a, like a responsibility or a, um, a an opportunity to like have a say in, in the goings-on of, of government. Like there's a scene where Stevens is called in and like asked to comment on – on obscure stuff about like tariffs and foreign policy. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And all the, 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 you know, the gentlemen are like, Oh, that, that was, that too is a little French. It was a little too French. They're like, (laughs) and they use that as evidence that the, the, you know, the common man doesn't need to be involved in government because he doesn't, he he doesn't understand it. You just leave it to it, to his, to his betters. And, Stevens has sort of internalized this. Like he sees society as a sort of, of wheel that's always turning and the people toward the center of the wheel are like the movers and, and shakers. And by serving someone like Darlington, who's toward the center of the wheel and is sort of making it turn, that is his, that is how he can make a difference in the, in the, in the world. That is how he can, have like power and responsibility yeah. it's not through like representative democracy or, or some kind of body like that but it's through recognizing the power structure that exists and like knowing your place in it and then fulfilling that role for yourself and so he feels i, I think some culpability and and maybe rightly uh because of he, th- there are a few different interactions through the book where he has an opportunity to like say or do something yeah like particularly the firing of the two yeah. uh the two like jewish maids and he has this like altercation with with miss kenton where she is threatening to leave and she is saying this is wrong and can't you see how this is wrong and he's being very like well it's just like it, mr Darlington wants this and that's just what we have to do and and it doesn't matter what i think about it and i'm not gonna let on whether i think about anything about it in the first yep. place so he is feeling now that Darlington, his worldview has been sort of discredited and and disgraced by the end of the of of World War Two. He is feeling this need to justify the way he has spent his life because oh, he spent yeah. it in service of a guy who he thought had noble aims or he thought was doing something important. Who it turns out, you know, at least in the in the views of 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 the the common people or you know society at large it seems like maybe he bet on a bunch of wrong horses and now <laughs> stevens has to like deal with that okay yeah that makes i mean that's that's a genre of autobiography i would say 
why did I make the choices that I made? Mm-hmm. Here's a bunch of reasons. Um, but you mentioned is like, does the way that his you did a little bit of the like, oh, it wasn't that bad except this thing. Oh, it wasn't that bad except this thing. Is that a common occurrence in the, that type of reveal of how maybe not dishonest he's been, but how much he hasn't told you? Or is that just like mostly you, tied to the Darlington get, stuff in that one scene? You get, a, I mean, if, if you're talking about him as an unreliable narrator, you get a lot of it in the Miss Kenton thing too. Like oh, the, okay. the, the letter that is the inciting thing where he's like, well, she wrote this letter to me and it sounds like she really wants to come back. As you get closer to Miss Kenton Uh-oh. in the book, he starts to say stuff like, well, I mean, I've, I've reread the letter again Uh-oh. and it's possible that I was reading too much into it because I can't really pinpoint the exact moment where she says, I do want to come back and work at Darlington. Oh no. (laughs) No. And I mean, what you get of Stevens is not an unreliable narrator in the sense that there's been some like harsh mental break and that his brain is just like, yeah, is not working the way that a a neurotypical well, brain works anymore. It doesn't you know, sound like he is willfully deceiving us either. It's more maybe he just doesn't want to admit things. I mean, I or, think I think like anybody who does a long solo drive, like you just have a lot of time to think about <laughs> stuff. I think especially if you're a guy in Steven's position where you know your life is your work and you have totally subjugated yourself to this you know, this other person and you just don't spend a lot of time in introspection because there isn't any, and maybe you're avoiding being introspective specifically because maybe there's some stuff you don't want to think about. You know, he's, he's driving around, he's having thoughts. There there are a bunch of things like when he's trying to put together his thoughts about what makes a great Butler yeah. and all this stuff. He's like, you know, I, I've talked about this before. I've thought about it before, but I, I have, this is the first time I've thought about it in this specific way. And it's, so it's, Okay, it is. A, it's a believable and I think well executed uh, way to show a character just like working some stuff out by <laughs> thinking about tweeting it. Tweeting through it, yeah. Not even tweeting through, just like thinking through it. Yeah, yeah. It's like a good version of the Robert Langdon thing, where you just where the mm. action of the book is often just a person sitting and thinking about stuff until he turns it over in his head a way that he hasn't turned it over in his head yeah, before. Yeah. Okay. And like that, and that's what makes the character interesting. I think is, is yeah. the way that the, the relatively mundane things that happen to him, like he runs out of gas once he goes to a, a very small village where, because he's this like posh looking mm. Butler, they sort of mistake him for a Lord. And he <laughs> sort of accidentally with, because he won't contradict them makes them think that he's this big mover and shaker oh, because no. you know I've met, I've met Winston Churchill because he was a you know he was a guest at the house but they all think that <laughs> oh this big foreign policy muckety mucks met Winston Churchill <laughs> okay uh, tell me about the tell me about the romance to to wind us down how does that go so there's Miss Kenton right and yeah. she's working in the house and Stevens always has a very professional relationship with her where anything, anytime they get near anything personal, he feels like he needs to fall all over himself to say to us, the reader, 
that, you know, sometimes it gets a little personal and mostly, but mostly I don't go in for that kind of thing. <laughs> and sure. she's, just, she's just at this house for literally years, like having cocoa with this guy and talking to this guy. And I think maybe the movie shows the demonstrates better why she would be charmed by him. Cause I think in the book, you just kind of have to accept that she's charmed by him, even though he seems like an automaton. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time. <laughs> okay, sure. But she really likes him and he, I think likes her too, but he's not thinking about it that way. Like yeah. you get multiple times in this book, how like, uh, I would say medium to heavy disdain for people who are in the the business of of being a servant or you know be, being a maid or a footman or whatever your position is in, in the household, people who get married and run off mm. for love is just silly because they leave you know, their they, duty they behind. Been, they could have been great butlers, yeah. <laughs> or maids, or whatever, and they threw it all away. Uh, how dare they? Their gifts dashed. So mm-hmm. he's not. So he's gonna pretend he's not interested, even though probably is interested. And you don't. The, the I think the the passages I've read so far give you sort of a rough idea of what Stevens's perspective is like. Like he he is never gonna come out and be like, "I had the hots for Miss Kenton. Mm. I would like to to dust her shelves, if you know what I mean." He does. He does not do anything like that. You just you pick up through his description of what she is doing that she understands their relationship to be flirtatious Mm. and she is kind of holding out for this guy for years without him i don't even know i don't even think it's fair to say he doesn't realize it it's just that he's not it's not what he's thinking about yeah uh before she finally like goes and gets married and she gives him like a million opportunities to interject and say hey miss kenton I would like to get, I would like to butler you. I would like you to grab my butler. Is it? <laughs> can, like, can we will, do, can we do more butler innuendo? Is that a thing that we can figure out? Um, yes. Yeah, something about wearing gloves, mm-hmm. something about carrying a tray. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, on, yeah. I mean, she, she would like him to, polish her silver yes and he is he is not <laughs> that's it you found and it. he is not and he's not picking up on it and he is even <laughs> when other characters are like hey stevens why are you crying and he's like i'm not crying <laughs> and his like dad literally is laying upstairs dead <laughs> like you you do get these little tiny snippets that make you aware that stevens is feeling things as mm. a as a, a humid would feel things yes in, as many humans would feel these things in the situations that he's in so like surely miss kenton has plenty of reason to believe that he likes her not i mean not least because he like hangs out in her room drinking cocoa while they catch up on all their professional news for the day like i don't know how often you could talk about shelves that need dusted but i like that doesn't require a nightly cocoa meeting my dude like maybe pick up some hints yeah while you're cleaning up the house (laughs) 
Maybe, I th- hey, Miss Kenton is dropping some hints. Could you, have you cleaned up the hints lately that she's been dropping? Because they're everywhere. Just like organize them, sort them. Mm-hmm. Tell us the most important hints that we need to know. And so she, and so she leaves, and he is, you know, he he never, he never does the thing in in a rom com where you stand up at the wedding and and yeah interrupt the the wedding and then you and you then you get the girl at the end. No, he never raises the boombox. And so he he makes it out to uh to Cornwall to talk to Miss Kenton and they have a lovely conversation for like two hours and and she's like, Oh, you know, I'm I'm back with my husband and he's I I do love him and you know, it's it is for early in our marriage, I, I didn't, but he's a, he's a kind man and he treats me well and we've been around each other for a long time. And so you just, yeah, you do kind of develop love for a person when, when you do that. And Steven's in a, a fit of, of peak <laughs> in in an uncharacteristic fit of having a personal conversation with another human being. <laughs> <laughs> It's like I just in your letters I I kind of get the feeling that you're unhappy and Whoa. she's like you know I I I've had my moments but it you know they they end up in a place where they talk about how it just doesn't it doesn't do to have regrets and and she shouldn't feel bad about things that that didn't happen between them and hmm. and he kind of lets her go in a way that seems like maybe it could help her stop thinking about like the, you know, the person who got away. Yeah, sure. Um, and so he is, you know, he hangs out in Cornwall for a couple of days. He's sitting in a park and it's, it's the evening and it's just a bunch of people hanging out in this park and like all the, all the lights come on in the park once it gets, once it gets dark enough and everybody in the park is like, is really excited about it and like clapping and, and having a good time. And he is talking to this guy on, on a bench, you know, he's a guy who used to be a footman. So they, they talk about their, their trade a little bit. Sure. And Steven's like, as a culmination of this thinking about Miss Kenton and talking to her and thinking about Darlington and, and his, his place in the, in the world and what he, you know, how he chose to spend his influence and in, in time in the years leading up to world war two, like Stevens is sort of having regrets in his very detached, like Stevens way about mm. the way that he's spent his life. And, you know, he's, he acknowledges that some of the problems that are, are happening around the house that, you know, some of the inciting incidents in the book, which he, he never like details exactly what it is that, that he's letting slip, but he's recognizing that things are slipping. And, ah. and the guy who he's talking to, who who's retired is like, yeah, like we're just, we're just getting a little older and, and maybe it's time to think about retiring. And then he, and then he talks about how, the best part of the day is the evening because you get, you know, you look back and you think about the uh, a job well done, like a, a life well lived. And then you you put your feet up and you just kind of enjoy the rest of your day. And it's a metaphor for life is huh. what it is. And so let me, let me find. Is he like moved by this experience, by this conversation? Stevens, yeah. Yeah, he's he is coming out of his shell kind of a little bit. Coming out of my shell. And I feel 
Oh, boy. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about rock and roll music because apparently the choice to have Stevens have an emotional reaction at the end of the book was inspired by Tom Waits, according to Kazi Shiguru. Oh, boy. He... Uh- <laughs> He did, he was going to have him stay like like stoic until the end of the book and then he heard this like moving song about a guy finally having emotions at the end of his life and he was like all right Tom Waits I got to change my book. Yeah, I think Stevens is is doing that just far enough in advance that you in the of the end of his life that you the reader get to think that he's going to get to sort of enjoy himself a little bit okay. here at the end of it. Uh this is Stevens talking to this other fella. Uh, Lord Darlington wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a bad man at all. And at least he had the privilege of being able to say at the end of his life that he made his own mistakes. His lordship was a courageous man. He chose a certain path in life. It proved to be a misguided one, but there he chose it. He can say that at least. As for myself, I cannot even claim that. You see, I trusted. I trusted in his lordship's wisdom. All those years I served him, I trusted I was doing something worthwhile. I can't even say I made my own mistakes. Really, one has to ask oneself, what dignity is there in that? So coming back to that theme of dignity. Um, It's a pretty big reversal for him, even to consider it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the guy who he's talking to is just like, you've got to enjoy yourself. The evening's the best part of the day. You've done your day's work. Now you can put your feet up and enjoy it. That's how I look at it. Ask anybody. They'll all tell you the evening's the best part of the day. I like that guy. I want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, this guy seems cool. Have have like a spot of fish and chips. Yeah, just drink a pint with that guy. Yeah. Just put have. Have a G and T. What? <laughs> they drink gin and tonic in England? Yeah, I guess they do. They probably have a weird name for it, though. I don't remember. Like I was at the I was at a British museum once, and there fizzy was and fizzy and bibby or something. <laughs> there were statues of two guys. Uh, it was like two little statue heads, and one said beer under what under it, and the other said gin. Huh. Now their names may have been fizzy and busy. I don't know, <laughs> but. They love their their beer and gin over there. But that's that's a book. Yeah. How do you how did you feel about the time you spent with Stevens? Because from what I read in the three star Goodreads reviews, three star Goodreads reviews is generally people praising the prose and things like that. And it it was not like wasn't like I wouldn't say polarizing like the Joker or something, but just people. <laughs> it's the <a> Joker polarizes <laughs> people. Like kind of wrestling with whether or not they liked uh, the inner dialogue style of the book or they found him a well-drawn character, but maybe not a relatable character. That's the thing about Stevens is the first like third to one half of the book. I was like, what is this guy's problem? Ah. He is a weird robot. And I don't like him. And why can't he be a person? And then there's a there, I don't even remember what the exact like point in the book where I had this realization was. But you get to a point in this where a light bulb comes on, and it's like, oh, it's the, the point of the book is that this is the way that he is. <laughs> yes, like That's it is good. It's more than whether it's it's not about you finding him relatable like that that he's yes. not relatable is the whole point yes. of the whole thing yeah yes fiction yeah. isn't it fiction isn't it give it a prize on i oi oi make a make a one make a talkie out of this one gov it's impossible 
You can't. <laughs> it's untalkable. Anyway, I'm glad you had an interesting time with this book. It seems yeah, a good time. I always enjoy like my time with Kaz. <laughs> That's the book I'm gonna write. My time with Kaz. Uh, my dinner with Kaz. Yeah, that's it's, fun. I I think I had a. This one's an easier read than the Bear Giant. Bear, oh for sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, 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 the yeah. Bear Giant, my my memory of that is is very unmoored and and floaty, which is kind of what the book is like for the characters too, because they mm-hmm. can't remember anything and they're just like grasping at straws all the time. So it's a more it's a more solid read than that. But and what I do remember of never let me go was a lot about like those kids like society deliberately forgetting them Mm -hmm. and like a lot of his books seem to have this meditation on like what character like whether or not characters are being honest with themselves and like the role memory plays in that sometimes i guess but it clearly seems to start uh or at least is very present in this book um early in his career i don't know about the yeah. first two books so mm-hmm. um well that's this book andrew thanks for telling me about it i appreciate you're it. welcome um i just hope neither of us winds up being the other person's butler anytime soon you're i hope i don't how fun that would be i well no i hope i don't end up being your butler you yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't want me as a butler are you kidding <laughs> i would be a terrible butler <laughs> I would be a bad butler, but like I'd still make, I'd still be have like big, I'm the baby, gotta love me energy, and it would drive you crazy. You would, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing would actually be clean, but I'd clearly tell you I tried hard, and you wouldn't know what to do with that. See, I would clean stuff because I don't know how to do a bad job. Yeah. But you would know exactly how much I hated it the whole time yeah. I was doing it. Yeah. So I guess it depends whether I would be a good butler would depend on whether you wanted to be clean or if you wanted to, to be clean and also for me to have a good attitude. Cause I would have a bad, <laughs> I would have a bad attitude. Okay. Well you can tell us who would make a good butler and who would make a great butler by writing in to overduepod at gmail.com Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks to Erica, Jen, Juliana, Tessa, Kami, Nat, Matt, Dina, Amy, and many more for reaching out in the last week or two. Thanks to Nick Lorandis who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? OverduePodcast.com is the website. Up there we have links to all the social feeds that Craig mentioned. We also have a link to our Patreon project, patreon.com slash OverduePod. Donate and you support the show help us by hosting help us buy books help us buy equipment help us pay for everything that makes the show go around and you also get some stuff including yep. access to our discord server which is quite a hopping happening space we got a lot of gamers got a lot of gamers we in got there some, we got some gamers over here join our discord and you too can be the first person to let us know we've made a mistake <laughs> When we make a mistake, which we haven't, it was a test. It was and a test. congratulations, you all passed. Yeah, that's true. Um, as We're I just, said, every every episode has has a little tiny test in it. As I said, definitely. And just, this is the first time anybody's noticed. And I always meant it to be this way. Next week, I will be reading *The Winter's Tale* by William Shakespeare, mm-hmm. my favorite Chaucer thing. What? Yeah, *The Winter's Tale*. Is that a Chaucer thing? No, I mean it's like Oh, you got me. It was a test. You know, like the the 
Oh, the, the Canterbury Tales. Like it's like winter is it has a tail. I get it now. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it before. That's yeah, it, it was a it was a bad it was a bad joke. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Until we hit you next week, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.